If you have a Bible with you, open it to Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple ones and to the youth, knowledge and discretion. Proverbs is today a neglected book. It shouldn't be. Our Lord Jesus Christ loved this book. And so did all his best friends and disciples, like James and Peter and Paul. They all quote from it constantly, use it repeatedly, frame much of what they say in the thought forms that they find there. Do not claim in the presence of the king honor and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, come up here than for you to be placed lower. If that sounds familiar, Jesus adapted that proverb for his metaphor and his teaching on the sins of pride. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. The foolish man built his house on the sand and the wise man built his house on the rock. If the one who hates you is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink for you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. And you may be thinking and recalling, that's what Paul says to the Christians in the church at Rome. You're right. And saying it, he is quoting directly from the book of Proverbs. But to learn from Proverbs, it's important to realize that Proverbs doesn't begin by simply spouting wise sayings, like sitting down to dinner with a bowl of fortune cookies. Proverbs actually doesn't begin with Proverbs at all. Proverbs begins, and it will constantly repeat this foundational message that acquiring wisdom begins with the right inclination of the heart toward the right object. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. And in these words, you can begin to see the progression that Proverbs is going to follow to enable everyone to acquire wisdom. Reverence and revere the ultimate source of wisdom, the Lord. And I say the Lord rather than God so that we may remember our subordinate position to the source and the authority of the source. Respect and cherish the proximate source of wisdom, your father and mother's instruction. Realize or obtain wisdom, which is described as a wreath for your head to crown your life ornaments around your neck to distinguish you. Recognize the contrast. The recurring contrast in Proverbs is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And it begins by saying fools are those who despise wisdom. Fools don't 
not just know wisdom, they actively hate and detest it. And the attitude of the wise is the opposite. The fool rejects wisdom. The wise choose wisdom. The fool hates wisdom. The wise love wisdom. The fool walks away from wisdom. The wise run toward and embrace wisdom. And in Proverbs, this is not a metaphor. Wisdom in Proverbs is a person, a personality, a presence, and a spirit. Wisdom shouts in the street. She gives her voice in the square. Wisdom, says Proverbs, is accessible. Wisdom takes the initiative. Wisdom reaches out to you. At the head of the noise, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. Wisdom will not be shouted down. Wisdom will not be drowned out. Wisdom meets you at the gate before you have even begun what you think is your business. Wisdom is personal, and wisdom requires repentant personal change to receive. Turn to my reproof, says wisdom. Behold, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make my words known to you. And this stresses the first point. You don't make yourself wise. Wisdom comes to you and you receive wisdom. And when you receive wisdom, you receive a spirit. This means that wisdom is both a personality and a spiritual force. And as Dallas Willard very clearly defined what is spiritual and an invisible, unbodied, personal power. In other words, you don't see wisdom, but if you possess wisdom, you possess a power to do things without which those things could not be done by you. Now, what are the traits of wisdom? Well, Proverbs has a very unique way of teaching these traits. Wisdom is not taught as a list of commands. In fact, you find very few commands in Proverbs. Wisdom is taught as a study in contrast. The foundational contrast, as I've already mentioned, is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And these contrasts take many forms in Proverbs. But I'll cover three because Proverbs is a big book and this is one sermon. But these, pro these contrasts are repeated over and over again. They are the contrast between pride and humility. Pride, haughty eyes, a proud look, a hatred of reproof, humility, the person who is able to learn from God and others. The contrast between laziness or sloth, personified in Proverbs as the slacker, the sluggard, and diligence, the attention to the task at hand and its careful completion for the good of others. And the contrast between intrigue, deceitful scheming, the fast buck, the insincere word, the backroom deal, and integrity. Constant consistency and truthfulness and expression, acts rooted in righteousness and justice, abiding faith in God in all circumstances. Now, how does Proverbs paint these contrasts? Well, when it comes to painting, it's hard to find 
anything, any book in scripture, except perhaps the gospels themselves, that paint pride with a blacker brush. And this seems to be because the proud person has made himself, rather than God, the center of his universe. The presence of pride entrenched in that way now creates an obstacle. In its advanced state, it creates an insurmountable obstacle to receiving instruction, to getting new ideas. The ideas and the correction or reproof, as Proverbs calls it, is now seen by the proud person as a threat to their own ego. Because to receive reproof is to be diminished because the most important thing is them. And pride is also named in Proverbs as a cause of misfortune, downfall, and ruin. Pride goes before destruction, says the teacher, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And for all these reasons, pride receives the ultimate condemnation. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. The humble person works with an entirely different array of traits and responses. And these include thinking before speaking, because you don't have an overblown view of your own opinion. Hearing and learning from others and from instruction and rebuke because your ego is not a barrier to what God wants to teach you. And not leaning on your own understanding, as Proverbs puts it, do not be wise in your own eyes, Proverbs 3, verse 7. For the humble person, when this instruction and this reproof come from God, they know it. In fact, for everyone who is here today who believes that scripture teaches truth. You and I are assured that God's reproof and discipline is and always will be for us one of the most tangible, real, and powerful ways that we will know that God loves us as a father loves his child. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a son whose father delights in him. Proverbs 3, verse 12, and that same message is repeated in the New Testament, in Hebrews, in chapter 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The second contrast, laziness and diligence. If the author of Proverbs paints pride with a black brush, he finds a shade that's even blacker to paint laziness. And then he adds sarcasm. So that, in my opinion, some of the funniest lines in Scripture are from Proverbs and about slackers. One of my favorites. The sluggard dips his hand in the bowl, and it tires him out to bring it back. Ouch. But it's not only sarcasm that Proverbs teaches about laziness. It also tells the reader that it brings danger. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, 
and poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. Just as Proverbs ridicules, satirizes, and warns against laziness, it repeatedly extols diligence. This is how one of the verses about the sluggard concludes. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. There's no reward. But the soul of the diligent will be made fat by beliefs for will have an abundance. The diligent are commended because they pay careful attention to those for whom they are responsible. Keep and know the condition of your flocks. Pay attention to your herds. Not only because these are investments of wealth, as they were in this culture, but even more so because these sheep and cows are living creatures created by God. They need grass to eat and water to drink, and they are depending on you. And diligence in Proverbs is commended most of all because it is seen as the right God-approved path to legitimate leadership, and from that to legitimate authority. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will not stand before obscure men. He will stand before kings. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. The capacity to serve increases the capacity to lead. The author of Proverbs does not spell out precisely why the Lord rewards and admires diligence so thoroughly and abhors sloth so deeply. I'm going to offer some reasons based on my reflection of reading the whole book. I will hope that they are spirit-led and ask you to judge and assess them. Again and again in Proverbs, the slacker, the sluggard, is depicted as one who repeatedly wastes opportunity and often wastes the opportunity because of fear and timidity that is not grounded in reality. There's a lion in the road, a lion in the open square, cries out the sluggard in Proverbs, when in fact there is no lion. Now if opportunity did not matter, then perhaps God would have nothing to complain about. But throughout scripture, God is continually depicted as the one who creates opportunity for those who serve him and depend on him. So Moses, after a lifetime of experience, working with opportunities God has created for them, for him, tells the people of Israel as he is about to depart and they are about to enter the promised land, not to forget the Lord when they begin to experience and realize the wealth he has prepared for them. Otherwise, says Moses, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as this day. To lack diligence in opportunities presented to you then in the eyes of Proverbs reflects failure to recognize and revere the God who 
created and provided those opportunities. And to spurn opportunity with sloth is described in Proverbs as a form of pride. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Now, one of the things that makes a sluggard a sluggard is his pride that he doesn't need to learn anything. But the wise recognize the opportunity and responsibility of the moment and that it is from the Lord. Whether that task is esteemed or despised by others, whether it's the work of a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a cook, a custodian, a bus driver, doesn't matter. It is to be received from God with gratitude and performed with care. Because as the teacher of Proverbs tells us, the lot, the array of opportunities, is cast into the lap, yours. But it's every decision is from the Lord. We have to be careful here so we don't mislead anyone. The diligence of Proverbs is not a prideful diligence. Some people pursue diligence so that they will have more credentials than others. And some do it to make more money than others, and so look down on people who make less. Proverbs knows nothing of that kind of diligence. The diligence that Proverbs teaches is diligence that presents its work to be known by an audience of one, the Lord. And then the same work given in service to others anonymously. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, said Jesus, so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, a sloth and a lack of diligence are equated at times in Proverbs with a form of pride. We also need to remember that sloth can lead to a redemptive opportunity if we're willing to receive a righteous rebuke to be more diligent. Personally, I'm diligent about many things, but not always important things at home, like washing dishes. For Christmas, I got Linda a brand new set of pots and pans because the ones she had were wearing out and were really crappy. This was a good choice. Linda has loved these pots and pans, so much so that she's out of her affection even developed a sense of protectedness toward them and a demand that they be treated with respect and cleaned spotlessly. Now these pots have clear glass lids so you can see what's cooking and so that they will reveal any negligence in cleaning. <laughs> I remember one particular dinner where I was cleaning up afterwards and Linda happened to pass by and fix her eyes on one of these lids which I had placed in the clean rack in the dry sink. She snatched up that lid by the handle, shoved it under my nose, and said in a not too kindly voice, does this look clean to you? Now, having been blessed with the benefits of a college education, I recognized immediately that this was a rhetorical question, expecting, indeed demanding, a correct answer. That was my intellectual response. Emotionally, I had a different response. But 
I did not express it because I found myself caught on the horns of two long-standing convictions. Conviction one, you shall not lie, even when telling the truth makes you look like a fool. Conviction two, which seems to be even older, is you shall not hit a woman. And so, physically I stood my ground, spiritually I took a step back, saw that I should choose the right option, and answered, no. <laughs> the rebuke and instruction I received was painful, but just as Proverbs foretells and teaches, it was valuable. I learned from it, I have benefited, and so have the pots and the pans. The third, contrast. The contrast of integrity and intrigue, which in many ways Proverbs treats as perhaps the most foundational of all. Now as for intrigue, it's good here to turn to a word from the next book, Ecclesiastes. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they sought out many devices. And the devices that are sought are sought by the devious, treachery, duplicity, falsehood, intrigue. And it turns out that that's most everybody, that these things are rooted deeply at the heart of fallen human nature. So Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the author of Proverbs now makes the contrast even tighter than he has before. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Now, there are really three contrasts here. One is the righteous and the wicked. One is the outcome, destruction and flourishing. And the other is there's a contrast in structure, house and tent. The author is saying that Though the wicked have a house that may be a fortress, a citadel, its foundation is rotten. It will fall. The upright may have a bungalow, a cottage, or even something as flimsy as a tent, although remember that God lived in one for 40 years with the Israelites. Yet if that tent is pegged in righteousness, it will stand. And the author goes on, it is an abomination for a king ruler to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. Proverbs 16, 12. Now this statement, if you think carefully about it, if you really let it get a grip on you, may lead to conclusions that can shock and offend. Because it is saying that it is not the ruler's policies that come first. It is the ruler's righteousness. And if the ruler commits acts of wickedness, she or he is seen by God as an abomination because the ruler's influence is very great over others. And in the kingdom of God and in the sight of God, this behavior will not be tolerated. A worthless person 
says the teacher, a wicked man is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who instructs with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife, therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. This is God's litmus test, his pass-fail test for leaders. And if they fail it, he judges them destined for destruction. So integrity is also part of that test. The integrity of the upright, says the teacher, will guide them. But the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Proverbs 11, verse 3. And have you not seen the second statement to be true? Men of wealth hanging themselves in their own jail cells. People who are among the world's richest individuals spending many of their last years in prison. People of unimaginable talent and ability who had everything only to lose all of it because they could not master themselves with integrity. But says Proverbs, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity, regardless of his wealth, than he who is perverse and implied perhaps wealthy in his lips and is a fool. Integrity is repeatedly named in Proverbs as the foundation of righteousness. A righteous man walks in his integrity. How blessed are those after him, his offspring, his legacy. Covenant loyalty and truth, say the teacher, preserve the king and he upholds his throne. That is both its authority and its legacy of succession by righteousness. Now imagine the tremendous personal power that flow out of a person of genuine integrity, a person whose word is so trusted, so faithful, that it is never doubted by anyone, even those who don't like that person and don't want to hear that word. If you can imagine that, you can imagine why it is placed at the very core of Christian discipleship. But I say to you, said Jesus, make no oath at all, because genuine integrity does not require it. But let your answer be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now the message of Proverbs is not memorize these comparisons and try harder to be like that. In fact, in a strict sense, as I noted, Proverbs does not give commands at all in the context of these comparisons. Rather, Proverbs proclaims this, that God is responsible for the wisdom that you need. And he is seeking you out because you need it. You, on the other hand, are responsible for cultivating a desire to receive God's wisdom and follow it. In the scales, your effort is much less important than God's effort but your effort 
does matter. And you are expected to adopt the right inclination, the right posture, the right direction to receive wisdom. If you want to get to Petoskey from Mancelona, you're not going to see the Kilwin Chocolate Factory by going south. The car will do the work, but you have to point it in the right direction and guide its path. And so, the author of Proverbs spells out these assumptions repeatedly. God initiates. He is coming to find you and provide you with an invaluable treasure of wisdom. God speaks because he is the source of wisdom. Your responsibility is listen. God offers wisdom's spirit. You desire to receive it. To say in the words of Proverbs to wisdom, you are my sister, and to call understanding intimate friend. Proverbs is looking forward to the day that wisdom comes. And when it comes, it offers great reward. And you are to be motivated by it. Now, God unapologetically offers these rewards in very plain English, or originally Hebrew. The lips of the wise, that is the things they say, protect them. Proverbs offers protection and honor. Wisdom offers that. God promises out of this courage and boldness. The wicked flees where none pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now, there may be some here who are starting to get suspicious. We just completed a study on the perversity of the American gospel, the heresy of name it and claim it. But the American gospel is not perverse because it promises rewards, but because it promises the wrong rewards for the wrong reasons obtained in the wrong way. Proverbs offers the right rewards for the right reasons obtained in the right way. Wisdom proclaims, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding, power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold even pure gold, my yield better than choicest silver. C.S. Lewis said this in a very helpful way for us. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and he here is thinking also of the New Testament and the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. From this point of view, the promise of glory, which is the greatest reward of all, in the sense describes, becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. Well, there's an understatement as only a brilliant academic can make it. And these promises and rewards that Proverbs offer do not go out of date in the New Testament. They do not become unsupported. They intensify. And the intensification of these rewards comes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has chosen to give you the kingdom. 
Luke 12, verse 32. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, running over. Luke 6, 38. This promise has a long history. It goes all the way back to being expressed to the Israelites through Moses again, as they are about to enter the promised land. Moses says them, I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the, and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Now to see how obvious this choice is, let's imagine that this is a Jeopardy question. And of course, if you watch Jeopardy, you know they aren't questions, they're answers. This is final Jeopardy. The outcome of the entire game is riding on this response. And it is a choice framed by Moses to the children of Israel in which the opposite choice is death. And they play the music and all the contestants are writing on their little boards. And then it's time to show them. The first contestant didn't know. And the second contestant doesn't know. But the third contestant has wagered all of her winnings on this response, holds up the board, and it says, what is choose life? Bing, 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 bing. All the bells and whistles go off. The audience stands in applause, and the guest host, whoever that is that week, says, that is correct. You are the winner, our new champion. Well, pardon this extrapolation from biblical text, but I've indulged in this to make this as clear as possible. How hard can this be? This is the gospel. This is a treasure that will never exhaust our effort to discover more of it. And it will never exhaust God's grace to help us make these discoveries. And the manifestation of that treasure is Jesus Christ. Wisdom has arrived. And so Paul told the Christians in Corinth, to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, but by his, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Things, as Dan said last week, which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. This is inexhaustible wisdom. Devote your life to its discovery and application, because much more so than jeopardy, the entire outcome hangs on this response. Like the famous retirement fund, TIAA, this wisdom never runs out. You can live in its pursuit forever and you will never weary or be bored with the chase. You will constantly gain and grow in riches and treasures that will never diminish. Choose life, love, wisdom. Read Proverbs. Live the gospel.
All right. And please stand as we close this week's service. And, uh, I don't see Aaron Beal here, but he would say uh, we are opening this week also.